How's everybody doing? Doing well? Anyone not doing well? No one, you wouldn't say it anyway. I know you're doing well over there. Look at it. You moved over there to your dad who apparently left you. You're telling stories, boy. All right. Okay. All right, well, let's pray together. And then we will get into our material. I'm very excited in particular about today's material because um, it is likely, the, in my opinion, the most important of the benefits of union with Christ, and that is justification. Justification, that sounds like a pretty big deal, right? Uh, and so if justification depends on union with Christ, then uh, it seems like it's worth exploring what justification is and how it relates to it. So let's pray and uh, we will dive in. Lord God, we are uh, thankful. We're thankful for the people around us. We're thankful for the opportunity to open this word, to have it in our own language. We're thankful for this doctrine of union with Christ, even though we can't fully wrap our minds around how it works. We understand how foundational it is to the blessings of the gospel and of the kingdom. And so uh, we pray that um, you would give us focus and attention as we seek to attend to these things this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so last time, if you were with us last time, I argued from first, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 6 and 1 Corinthians 1.30 that union with Christ explains the benefits of the gospel, many of the benefits of the gospel. And um, I want to reiterate that in doing so, we kind of move past the mystical, uh, the mystical union and move to what we call position by proxy or things that are credited to us. And uh, I don't know that I did a good job uh, making that part clear. So someone could have, dis you, you, when I went through last time, there was that Christ became to us wisdom, redemption, uh, justification, uh, sanctification. And I said that those things were true of Christ and we are credited with those um, as opposed to those things or things that in air in us that we have. Someone could disagree with me about that and still think that all of those things come on the basis of union with Christ. And so that was really the main point, that union with Christ explains these things, and therefore it does more explanatory heavy lifting uh, than a lot of people realize. I didn't get to the very last text, uh, and so, but as it turns out, that was a perfect, it was actually great that I didn't get to it, because it's a perfect segue into the first benefit of union with Christ, which is the rest of the series, which is justification. So turn with me, it's just one verse, to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it is a verse that almost everyone is familiar with. Paul is talking about this ministry of reconciliation that he has been given and saying that uh, he is an ambassador for Christ. God is making his appeal for reconciliation through him. And he is imploring people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And then you get 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sins, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, let me just make a couple brief points, because I'm going to come back to this later. 
But to say that he made him to be sin does not mean that Christ was made sinful. And then, you know, of course, it would, would be, you know, he would require redemption from sin himself. It, say that, um, he, it says that he did not know sin. He did not know sin, but he was counted as though he knew sin. He was treated as though he knew sin on our behalf and for our sake. But toward what end? So that in him, and this is what I understand to be the union with Christ language, that in him, in him, in Christ, union with Christ language, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that, so, let's, so look at the parallel here. Christ did not actually know sin, but he was counted as sin. The idea is we did not actually know righteousness, but we were counted as righteousness because of what Jesus did. Both of them are credited. Both of them are imputed. Christ was treated as though he was a sinner, even though he was not. Believers are treated as though they are righteous, even though they were not. And it sure sounds like we have a righteousness that comes from Christ, which would be justification. That is going to be the doctrine of justification, and we have it in him. So union with Christ bound up with justification, and you see the, the two fused together in this particular passage. And thus, we, get to, we, we kind of begin our trek through understanding the benefits, the position by proxy of union with Christ, starting with Christ's role in justification. But before we understand Christ's role, or excuse me, union with Christ's role in justification, we do need to pause and just say, what is justification? What is justification? Justification and being justified are renderings of the righteousness word group. Okay? Dikaiosune. Righteousness. And justification is literally righteousification. If you look at it in the Greek. Justification is righteousification. That's just not a, you know, not an English word. But that's what it is. It's to be justified is literally to be righteousified. To be righteousified. And that is why you have heard that justification is to be declared righteous. It's, it's a kind of righteousness that happens to somebody or is done to somebody. Okay? And the historical question is whether or not this righteousifying is actually making someone righteous or infusing them with virtue. Okay? And that's going to be a, the view of our Catholic friends. I was, fact, I, was, I was in a Catholic church yesterday and witnessed a Catholic mass for a quinceanera. If you've ever been in one of those, you're missing out. But uh, that, is the, that is their view, justification, right? So it is going to be righteousness that gets infused into someone as kind of a moral quality. That's what justification is. That's what it means to be righteousified. Or does it mean to be counted as righteous, even though you are in fact not? That is the difference that really, in one sense, lay at the heart of the Protestant Reformation. And you can claim you could claim a couple of things were at the heart of it, but certainly that was it. Certainly that was one of them. Um, again, the Catholic view here isn't that justification leads to 
a moral life. That's what all of us believe, like fruit, you know? People who are justified bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Everybody believes that. That's not the, that's not, uh, the, the Catholic understanding here. The idea to use our categories for our Catholic friends is that they combine and they fuse justification and sanctification. Justification is not something that happens. Justification is a process. Justification is a process. It's not a declaration about something that I am not. When God righteousifies me, okay, he forms righteousness down into my soul. Um, and that involves moral transformation towards holiness, okay? So there is moral change that accompanies, that is, that is part of justification itself. It doesn't just follow it like everyone believes. It's actually moral change itself. So, so but we're going to return to that next time. We're going to return to that next time. I wanted to mention that because of some of the texts that we're going to look at today. We're going to return to, is the righteousification that happens an infusion of righteousness, or is it God looking at people who are in fact unrighteous and saying, no, I'm counting you as righteous? And if so, how, does that, how is that supposed to work? Like, how, how exactly is that supposed to work? But as we understand justification, we, we have to understand that um, something that a lot of Reformed theology has passed over, and this has gotten more attention recently, and that is just this typical Jewish standard understanding of justification uh, that the context of the New Testament gives us. And in, Jewish under, in a Jewish understanding of justification, I would say it's roughly something like the final judgment, um, it was an end-time event. Justification, an end-time, an eschatological event uh, that was, took place on the basis of whether or not someone had lived a righteous life. Not a perfect life, but a righteous life. That we could, we could look at that person and we could justify them. That is to say, we could declare them to be a righteous person. Consider someone like Job, uh, who was a man blameless and upright. That kind of righteousness. Okay, Or consider Psalm 1. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, but the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. It is the righteous folks who will stand in the judgment. The people who have lived righteously who will stand in the judgment, who will be justified at the end of the day. Now, this understanding of being found righteous in the judgment and this end-time verdict of justification carries over to the New Testament. It didn't just disappear. It's like still a thing. It's still a thing. Here, I'll show you. I'll show you. For example, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment... People will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Notice the end-time context there. Notice the justification language, and notice that it is tied to people, people's words specifically here, particularly careless words, how people are treating one another verbally, 
a future justification on the day of judgment. I can't get any more clear than that. How about this? This is James. James tells us in chapter 2, a context where people are claiming, you know, that empty belief, this, by the way, belief is being the same word as faith, pistis, uh, can save. And James says, well, even the demons has that, ha have that, excuse me. He says in 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. And then in condemning faith that is devoid of fruit, James, who is writing before the Judaizer controversy, there's no Gentile issues in James. He's writing before that. He's writing to a Jewish audience. He says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. It's all our Catholic friends' favorite verse. In the same way, this is not their favorite verse, the next one, because it, it, it ruins their understanding of the first of 24. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Now, like I said, James is writing to a Jewish audience. He starts talking, starts the whole letter with writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. But even but past that, I think even more importantly is the, the content, the way the letter is written, the, the, the themes that are present, and the lack of other themes. Um, that final end-time justification in my, is in mind here is really suggested for two reasons. The first is that the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, seems to be an important emphasis for James. It's a point of context for what he's saying. The closing verse directly before this section is about the judgment in verse 2 of chapter 1. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What judgment is that? Obviously, it is the final judgment. That is what, that is what everyone in James's audience would have assumed. Towards the close of the letter... In chapter 5, we read this. Be patient, therefore, brothers, on the heels of everything I said, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who have remained steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by, under, uh, by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So the end time final judgment language is the first reason to, to think that justification in James is just this typical Jewish understanding of justification that took place at the end of time. The second one is this verse about Rahab. Rahab was justified by her works. You're thinking, what? 
Rahab was what? So the believers are going to be justified by their works in the same way that Rahab was justified by her works. What does that mean? Well, it demonstrated that she wasn't a fraud, that she actually feared Yahweh because her behavior lined up with her profession. She was demonstrated to be legitimate. It could be declared over her that she had acted rightly. She was someone who had acted rightly before God. And so James just repeats what everyone would have known, everyone would have believed in his audience, that at the end of the day, we are going to be justified by works and not by simply empty claims to faith that everyone can make, that everyone can make. And here in, the, here in Tennessee, man, everyone makes them. Everyone makes them. We're all... In the words of Florida Georgia Line, we're all good with Jesus, okay? I don't listen to Florida Georgia Line. But some, <laughs> someone, someone who did told me that line was in the song. Most surprisingly to some of you all is the Apostle Paul. He writes, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And notice the context, and when you go down to verse 16, it's a future context. Paul is something talking about something that is going to happen on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Okay? It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And when, they, when will they be justified? On that day when... By my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. That is to say, at the end of the age. It's not the doers of the word. Sorry, it's the doers, not just the hearers. Something else, by the way, we remember from James. Who will be found righteous in the judgment? Any questions about that before I move on? Yes, sir. What about that idea? You're right. I don't know, but no one believes that. Right? Unless, I mean, just no one that no one that you would know, no one that I would know. Full on just Pelagianism. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying like works and law. You know, doing works and law. I mean, that's right. Yeah. But you're sitting there saying they're justified by them. Oh, so yeah, so I'm saying that there is an end-time justi end justification that is according to works, yes. Well, and that's not me saying it. That's what, that's what this is saying. I just want to be very clear. I'm not making it up to create tension that doesn't exist. It, it's, it's right here. Now you say, well, can you, explain, can you massage that tension for me and help me understand how? Yes, I'm get, I'll get there. But we've got we to gotta get this part first. We've got to get this part first, okay? Any other questions? Good question. Any other questions? <clears throat> One of the reasons that some, some people, if they're honest in here, have never really considered this, the idea that justification is an end-time thing. Justification is what happens when you repent and believe and get, and get saved. That's how can we were all talking. Do you have a question now? Yes. Yeah. Well, we'll get. Well, we'll get there. 
There, yes, that's, that's the whole big reveal. There's a big reveal. There's a big reveal, but it's important that, that you're, you're, you can't just hold on now, okay? No, no, just time out, time out. But, so, but you can't skip over this part. And what a lot of Reformed theology has done is kind of proof-texted the New Testament to their theology of justification and they haven't tried to understand justification as a part of New Testament biblical theology and the already not yet. And that is what we're going to dip into. And that's why it's important. You need to know that there is, remember, you get to the end of the Old Testament and even someone like John the Baptist, hey, everyone was expecting the kingdom to come in exactly like you and I read it right off the pages of the Old Testament prophets. It was all over renewal, everything including final justification. It was just everyone's expectations. And if things happened, things were fulfilled a little bit differently, such that there can be an already component and a not yet component. We're going to get to that in just a second. I'm getting ahead of myself. As the Old Testament, Jesus, Paul, and James make clear, on that day there will be some found righteous and there will be some found unrighteous and it will be very straightforwardly determined who they are by whether or not, like Job, they lived an upright, righteous life. And the, the final example of this, by the way, is final judgment in Matthew 25. In Matthew 25. Do you remember? Isn't it, I mean, have you ever read Matthew 25 and wondered why there's not a theology test there? Everyone remembers Matthew 25, right? The final judgment, Matthew's rendering of it. This would not have uh, been a surprise to anyone reading it. I think it would be a surprise to some, some people. So the Son of Man comes in glory, verse 31. The nations separating the sheep and the goats. Sheep on the right, goats on the left. And the king on the right will say, the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. And then you get for what? Why? Why do they get to come in? Why do they get to come in? And their answer would not be, the answer here is probably not the answer you and I would have would initially give. It doesn't mean it's a wrong answer, but it's talking about a future, just a future final judgment. What is it on the basis of? Why do you get to come in? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Okay? Not, there isn't a, uh, this, it's not pictured there as a, as a theology test. Okay, so it is only up against the background of what we have just covered that we can understand the true scandal of Paul's gospel. This is where it gets really, really good. So turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Oh, I just slept my computer by accident. Sorry, everybody. That was bad. Okay. All right, so as you're turning to Romans 3, most of you probably are there now, um, I want to again remind you of the importance of inaugurated 
eschatology, the already, not yet. So someone tell me, what is that? What's your understanding of that? What, when someone says inaugurated eschatology, or the, if you've heard already, not yet, what, what's someone talking about? What is that? Anybody know? Has anyone ever heard of that? Surely you have, because I know that. Yeah. Inaugurated eschatology. The end is here already? Yes, it started. Yeah, what, what are you going to say? You going to say something? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good way to say it. So that Jesus came and all the promises you say was initially fulfilled, and then maybe there's a final fulfillment or something like that. Yeah. What else? He did. He certainly did walk the earth. That's right. Anything else about the already not yet tension? What are some examples of things that you might say we have already not yet? Okay, we're saved, but not yet quite like we will be. Is that right? Okay. What else? What are some things that we have already, but not yet as we will? Okay, so the so so yeah we yeah that's definitely the 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 largest. A controlling, organizing uh, a theme there, that the kingdom has come. Christ is truly ruling. Christ is truly reigning. And this is the bit of the huge difference between us and some of our dispensational friends who don't believe the kingdom, believe Jesus came offering the geopolitical kingdom of David, but the Jews rejected it and so he switched to declaring the kingdom in mystery form, parables of the kingdom. And that's when he started proclaiming a kingdom that wasn't of this world. And that's why there's the expectation that Jesus is coming back because the kingdom was rejected the first time, didn't even get started, and is going to... But, but I'm suggesting for reasons far beyond, I've already taught on this, I don't know, a year or two ago, the kingdom has come. It's already here. Christ is reigning but not quite like he will, right? If you've been listening to John, it's true that you have eternal life, but you'll die. So you don't have it quite like you will. There are a lot of things that we have already, but what I'm suggesting is these things are in-time things that got backed up into the present. That's why George Ladd's famous book is The Presence of the Future. Okay, chronologically, these we can experience these things now, but they're coming back from the end of the, uh, end of time. The fulfillment of these blessings, we get a we get an advance on these things that are really belong to the end in the already, while we wait for the not yet. Okay, and what I am suggesting is that justification is just one more of those things. That's why there's all this future tense stuff. Justification is a concept that belongs fundamentally to the future, the not yet, but has, like all the other things we just said, gotten backed up into the present. So there is an already. So that there can be a present tense current way in which we are justified. Now, if you're like, Tyler, 
You went to school too long. You're making this stuff up. Let me just give you two quotes here from two giants of New Testament scholarship, both Reformed. One is Tall Tom. Of course, that means Tom Schreiner up at Southern. He says, True as it is that Paul's gospel announces God's judgment is already rendered in Christ at the cross, the apostle never relinquishes the Old Testament eschatological orientation towards the coming day of judgment. For God's Son has come and will appear again to call everyone to judgment. For Paul, justification remains fundamentally the eschatological verdict of acquittal. For Paul, justification remains an end-time verdict. Greg Beal, who is an intellectual professional athlete, says, It may be surprising to some to learn that it is not uncommon in the Reformed tradition to speak of what has been variously called twofold justification, or a past justification and a subsequent justification by works, or a first justification and a second justification. And then, Poor Greg Beal is just cannot resist the temptation to add his own pair of words to the mix. So he prefers causal justification, the ground of justification, and manifested justification, what shows that someone has the ultimate ground. Okay, And so I'm suggesting that we understand, because I think Scripture clearly understands, justification is something that is getting backed up into the present. Now, Let's go into Romans chapter 3. Let's start with verse 9. So please track along with me. Because this is really great stuff. And if you can understand this future-orientedness of justification... Let me just put it this way. If you don't understand the future-orientedness of justification, the but now of 321 will not shock you like it, like it should. Okay, Because Paul is doing something shocking. So he says this, um, he's talking about, are Jews any better off than Gentiles? Are they standing before God according to the obedience of the law? He says, are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that, uh, all are, uh, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And just like James says, if someone is seeking to establish their righteousness according to the law... They have to keep the whole law, James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point have become guilty of all of it. So no, whether it's the Jews who are given the law or the Gentiles who didn't have the law, everyone is under sin. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And so it's not that there, there isn't uh, an advantage of the Jew, Romans 3.1, but that everyone nevertheless has fallen short. And then he launches into this miserable section talking about the depravity of man and how short everyone's fallen, okay? None is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks God, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat's an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths are full of bitter, curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace. They have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. It's like, whoa! He goes back into the Old Testament and, and takes out all of these different verses, some, a lot of them from Psalms, and just put them, put, puts them together and has this horrible indictment of the depravity of man. Yes, no one can stand before God in their sight. 
works, no one's going to stand. No one's going to stand. Now, we know whatever the law says, verse 19, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, look down at me in verse 20, because you have to reconcile 3.20 with 2.13. Okay, verse two or chapter two thirteen says this. Remember, we already read it. It's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified or righteousified. The doers of the law will be righteousified. Over in twenty, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, which one is it? Is it the doers of the law who will be justified, or is it that no one's going to be justified? Which one is it? There, uh, there are multiple ways to understand what is going on here. Uh, let me just tell you the two pr primary views. Uh, actually, there, I'll tell you three. One is that works of the law and um, the law refer to two different things. That works of the law is a technical term, and that law refers to something else. Paul seems to use them in the book of Romans and in his other literature interchangeably. Okay, particularly the newer perspective on Paul that's come up where it's re-examined first century Judaism has said, no, the works of the law are things like the Sabbath law, food law, food regulation, circumcision, those kind of things. Uh, you can't confuse that with just God's commands in general. I don't buy that argument. Uh, there's a lot of literature there. It would take us far into left field. Let me give you the two better uh, examples, uh, the better explanations. The first one is that in 2.13, the doers of the law will be justified is talking about a hypothetical nobody. Paul is talking about a hypothetical nobody uh, in order to make a point. Okay? Um, now, the second view, the third view, I guess now, is that it's not that no one can do the law, but it's not that no one can do the law well enough to be justified in his sight. Okay? So that kind of shows up between 2.13 and then 3.20. So the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight to whatever extent they could be justified before men, to whatever extent they live a righteous life, because everyone has labored to obey under sin. No one's going to stand. No one's going to stand. I, I deeply, I'm deeply persuaded by that third option. I think the first two are bunk. Um, God, there are people who obey what God commands, and Paul knew that. Paul remembered Job. Paul knew of Samuel. He understood that there were people capable of doing the law and fearing the Lord. He read Psalm 119. Uh, in fact, at the end of chapter 2, he identifies for us those who obey the law. And 2.27, who is it? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the written code and circumcision but break the law. Clearly he thinks that people are capable in some sense of keeping the law. But the problem is, Paul is saying, you can't place your, face, your faith there. Notice he's got to have a category for people being able to do the law and obey God like Job, like Samuel, or otherwise he would have said something else. 
Uh, he would just say, actually, no one's ever done the law despite all appearances. No one's ever done the law despite all appearances. And even though I'm telling you that you know, the people who do the law, uh, even without the special revelation, are going to condemn you, no, no, no one can actually do it. He clearly has a category for being able to do the law. What he doesn't have a category for is anyone to be able to do it perfectly in a way that would allow them to stand before God in the judgment. Okay? And so that sets up the problem. That sets up the problem. If the most righteous people in the world, genuinely righteous people, like Job and like Samuel, are not going to stand in the judgment because they all labored in obedience under sin, then who has a chance? Nobody. Nobody. No one has a chance at this if despite the most genuinely right if the most genuinely righteous people fall short because they can't obey the law perfectly, even though they obey it truly, we're sunk. How is anyone going to be declared righteous, justified? No one. And that is what sets him up for verse 21. But now, ho, oh, now, now there's something new. But now, the righteousness of God, remember righteousness, justification, same word group, has been manifested apart from the law Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus. We're just going to pause right there. So wait a second. If you're someone hearing this, you understand that justification is coming. You understand that the most righteous people won't stand in the justification that's coming because they didn't obey the law perfectly. So how is anyone going to stand? Ah, there's a, there's a different kind of righteousness that's now being revealed. There's a new kind. It was in the law and the prophets. It's not totally new on the stage of redemptive history. That's not what it says. It was clearly back in the law and the prophets, but it was hidden and now revealed like most of the, uh, a lot of the things revealed in the, in the New Testament. And, and the scandal of it is this. Now you can have righteousness that doesn't have anything to do with obedience. There is a kind of righteousness that has nothing to do with living a righteous life, which is what everything so far would lead us to believe. There is a kind of righteousness that doesn't have to do with obeying the law. It comes from the righteousness of another. It comes from the righteousness of Jesus Christ appropriated to us by faith. By faith. It's something that has been revealed here, but now, it was, was back there, but now, because Jesus has come and He has died and He has risen from the dead, 
There is a righteousness that can be had that does not come through righteous living. And if there's any question, by the way, that none of the Old Testament saints were not righteous enough to stand, Paul clarifies that the redemption in Christ and the propitiation was to show God's righteousness because he passed over former sins. Isn't that what it says? Let's keep reading. If you keep reading here, it was to show... No, I'm sorry. Continue on to verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He had passed over them. Okay? It's not like people back there were good enough to get in and people now weren't. No, everyone had sinned. But it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, a just God, and the justifier of those of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the way God accomplishes his justice is he sends his son to die and he executes justice. He reckons someone who knew no sin as though he was sinful so that those of us who are in him could be treated as though we have, we are perfectly right before God that we are perfectly right before God. And in Romans 4 through 8 and the rest of Paul's letters, we get the same problem presented and the same solution offered. Uh, and so what I want to do, you know what, actually, I, I, I've got four minutes left, but I actually don't want to start in the next section. Um, let me instead use the last four minutes to give an illustration, okay? Next time we are going to come back and look at Righteousness as something that is not infused but is credited to us and something we have now. And then we're going to tie it together with the question that we, uh, the question I think a lot of people struggle with, very much struggle to articulate, is what does the resurrection of Jesus have to do with justification? And I've already given some hints here with some of the concepts and themes. Okay, you might think resurrection belongs to a different time as well, but. But Jesus received resurrection in the middle of history. We're going to return to that. Did you have a question? You're just stretching your hand. Okay, great. Let me just give an a, a illustration here about reconciling justification by faith in Christ now with final justification that is according to works. It's like how does that how does that fit together? Um, and here's how it fits together, and I'm stealing the, it's not my own example, I'm stealing it. And I used it when I taught on James. Uh, some of you are members at a place called, uh, well, doesn't matter, Costco, Sam's, some of these large, like, bulk food stores, right? Yes, some of you are. I've talked to you. Um, and uh, what you have, is, uh, at least as I understand it, is like a card that you present or scan or something to gain access to go into the store or purchase the goods at the counter or something like that. Is that right? Am I understanding this correctly so far? Great. Okay. So before the in the final judgment, there's a sea of people. Okay? Sea of people before standing outside of Costco. They all claim to be members. 
All of them. Many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, were we not members? And what will be the t- in a sea of people claiming membership? How will, the, how will publicly, at the end of time, the frauds be exposed from those who are genuine? The answer will be the people who can go, no, actually, I've got a card. Card holders, where are you? Come on in. Everyone else, depart. Now, what am I doing there? Is the card the foundational reason that you get access to Costco? No, it's not. It's the fact that you're a member there. Someone paid for your membership. It was a Christmas present. Okay? That's why you're entitled to get into that store. Because you're a member. The card just demonstrates that you are the member. Right? Okay? That's not the foundational thing that entitles you to entry. The foundational thing that entitles you to entry is uh, the fact that you are a member and you have a paid subscription or uh, paid membership there. What I'm suggesting is that final justification will not be the question of, okay, how do you, what is the foundational reason that you stand right, uh, that you can stand right before me? That's already happened in initial justification. Final justification, like we saw in the final judgment in Matthew 25, will be public vindication of Christ's people. It will be a public justification of who walked rightly before God. And how is that determined? By works, by fruit. Did you actually live righteously? Or did you claim to be a member but acted unrighteously? The way that it's going to be publicly sorted out is by the people who have something to actually show for their faith, not to be confused with that being the actual ground for their entrance into the end-time kingdom of God. Does that make sense? I know that's a little bit of a, a nuance there, but does that distinction make sense? So initial justification, someone purchasing me a membership. Faith in Christ. Okay? Now I am entitled to go in, but not because I did anything. It was given to me as a gift, it says. That's what grounds my... That is what the ultimate foundation for my standing before God. However, when we all show up in a sea of people claiming to be members... The process that's going to be happen that's going to happen to publicly vindicate the liars in the crowd from those who are legit in the crowd is okay, I know an easy way to sort this out. You're a member, you say so? All right, let's see your card. And the people who have lived righteously will say, Yes, when you were naked I clothed you. In your prison I visited you. I loved one another. I love my brother. I love my sister. Okay. We will we will revisit this next time. We'll revisit this next time, but we'll primarily uh, be push on, and I'll try to conclude uh, justification next uh, uh, during our next session. But uh, super, super important to understand the future aspect of justification in order to understand the whole scandal of Paul's doctrine of justification that can be said uh, uh, to to be enjoyed even now because of Christ. All right, let's pray. God, we are we stand in awe of a God who would declare us righteous by uh, treating his your son as though he knew sin, even though he didn't. And so that we have a righteousness of another now. And Lord, 
we are thankful for you sending Christ to do something we simply could not do. And that all of our works outside of Christ, before Christ, are nothing before you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us not to forget this great grace. Help us progressively become what we've already been declared to be. In Jesus' name, amen.